High up in the peaks of the Himalayas, a footprint in the snow baffles a mountaineer as he attempts to climb Everest for the first time. Pulling out his camera, he prepares to snap a shot, eyeing the horizon nervously before placing his ice pick down alongside the print for scale and bringing the viewfinder up to his eye. In India, a tea planter reads about the photograph in a local newspaper and turns over the idea of going to hunt the creature that made the tracks, completely unaware that he was about to start what would eventually become a lifelong mission. On the other side of the world, a Texas oil baron reads about tales of adventure high up in the mountains of Nepal, a mystical land of incense and meditation, and dreams of uncovering the mysteries of the wilds. The trio were, it's safe to say, a fairly unlikely crew, but their fates would become intimately linked by a search that would carry them halfway around the world, hold up in damp caves for days on end, and pull off one of the most unusual heists in all of history. It was a search for a myth, a symbol, and a monster. It was a search for the Yeti. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Season 6, Episode 1. I'm Ben, your host, as always. I hope you've had a brilliant holiday season and you're having a great new year. It's really exciting to be back and I'm looking forward to a really exciting season ahead. Uh, I'm just going to give you my once a season kind of hard sell. So if you want to skip it forward, uh, you're free to do so. But uh, my thoughts this year, you know, my New Year's kind of resolution, I guess, is, you know, I'm really going to push the podcast over the edge this year. Um, For quite a a while now, Dark Histories has been, you know, right up there kind of toe to toe with the big boys, um, which is something that I'm really proud of being the fact that I, I make it you know, uh, as a single person podcast and, you know, I don't have like gigantic production teams or, or, you know, things like that behind me. Um, you know, pretty much all of the big boys have s- cited dark histories as a source at this point. So now I just feel like this year, this season, let's just take it to them. If they're citing dark histories as a source, then there's clearly, uh, you know, a space for me it, it, up there with them. Uh, so, you know, I'm going to need your help to do that. You know, if you can, um, you know, review. Uh, you can review on Spotify now, which is great. So if you listen on Spotify, you can review. If you listen on iTunes, basically wherever you listen, if you can leave reviews, that's great. You know, I'm going to need you to, uh, you know, if people ask for recommendations online and you and you like dark histories, tell people, tell them, say, hey, if, if you're looking for that kind of thing, here's dark histories. And if you'd like to support, there's plenty of ways to, you can do so if you go to darkhistories.com they're, they're all there there's like the patreon and donations and things like that but you don't have to um you know there, there are plenty of ways that you can support the show without without sort of dealing with patreon if you don't want to so yeah that's kind of my hard sell let's i'm kind of been going toe to toe with the big boys for a while now and it, it's time that i kind of get right up there with them and, and really mix it with them um because like I say, I think um, the podcast is, you know, approaching 5 million downloads. We're already kind of trying to like muscle in there. And, you know, they don't want us up there. You know, we're, we're basically crashing their party. Um, and then I, I like that, you know, a little independent that can just basically shoulder into their little closed off ring at the top and say, all right, guys. So, yeah, that's my hard sell. Let's get us up there. It's going to take, you know... Um, support from everybody to, to to make it happen so yeah thanks very much for listening to that let's crack on with the episode now anyway this is gonna be a beast so let's get on with it because it's 
probably going to be quite a long one. This is Tom Slick and the Search for the Yeti. Home to the highest mountains on Earth, the Himalayas strike across India's northern border, dividing the subcontinent from the Tibetan Plateau, with China to the north and Pakistan to the west. With more than 100 peaks of over 23,600 feet, it is home to some of the harshest environmental conditions on Earth, from its humid subtropical foothills covered in marsh and forest to dry, frozen, rocky desert, and at its highest altitudes, its snow-capped peaks, surrounded by blizzards for much of the year. Standing proudly between the border of Nepal and Tibet, Mount Everest, whose peak is the tallest summit and highest point on Earth at 29,000 feet, has proven a strong draw for people from across the globe seeking to conquer its long list of dangers, proving fatal for hundreds since expeditions to the region began. Due to the spiritual role of so many of the mountains in the local cultures, the region has long held a mystical and at times mythical romance in the West imagery of an isolated Tibetan monastery, a solitary gong tolling across the empty landscape, or of indigenous villages complete with peace flags perched atop impossibly sheer cliffs have been commonplace in fictional mediums for over a century. One of the most infamous characters in the region's narrative is the Yeti, the erroneously named Abominable Snowman or the Wild Hairy Man of the Mountains an elusive giant who falls perfectly in line with the mystical vision of the region, the wild man of the peaks, surviving at impossible altitudes, posing a constant threat to those that might stray into its wild territory. Venerated in local Sherpa folklore for centuries, its mummified body parts have been worshipped as relics in monasteries across the range for hundreds of years, whilst the stories of its existence have enthralled entertained and terrified outsiders for almost as long. An embodiment of the dangers of the peaks, a metaphorical icon of our fear of the wilderness, misidentified wildlife, or a very real flesh and blood monster. The story of the Yeti persists even until today in many different forms, despite the only evidence of its physical existence being a vast collection of photographs and plaster casts of oversized footprints left in the snow, leading to nowhere. The 19th century saw few Western mentions of the Yeti, with less than a page of vague text dedicated to the creature. In 1832, James Princep wrote of a wild man in a footnote within his chapter of the Mammalia of Nepal, published in Volume 1 of the Journal of the Asiatic Society of Bengal. My shooters were once alarmed in the catcher by the apparition of a wild man, possibly an orang, but I doubt their accuracy. They mistook the creature for a cacodemon or raxus and fled from it instead of shooting it. It moved, they said, erectly, was covered with long dark hair and had no tail. Over 60 years later, a second equally vague mention was published in the 1899 book Among the Himalayas, written by Lawrence Waddell a Scottish explorer, amateur archaeologist, and Indian army surgeon who had travelled extensively throughout the Himalayan region during the dying years of the 19th century, writing on many of his observations from the area, documenting the wildlife, flora and fauna. Recognised as an authority on Tibet, he was one of the first authors to bring an explanation of Buddhism to the West. Commanding only a single paragraph, 
and promptly dismissed, he wrote of his experience of the Yeti's tracks, only in passing, as an interesting dash of cultural flavour. Some large footprints in the snow led across our track and away up to the higher peaks. These were alleged to be the trail of the hairy wild men who were believed to live amongst the eternal snows, along with the mythical white lions whose roar is reputed to be heard during storms. The belief in these creatures is universal among Tibetans. None, however, of the many Tibetans I have interrogated on this subject could ever give me an authentic case. On the most superficial investigation, it always resolved itself into something that somebody had heard tell of. These so-called hairy wild men are evidently the great yellow snow bear, which is highly carnivorous and often kills yaks. Yet, although most of the Tibetans know this bear sufficiently to give it a wide berth, they live in such an atmosphere of superstition that they are always ready to find extraordinary and supernatural explanations of uncommon events. The 20th century saw an increased Western presence in the region, as there became something of a rush to be the first to scale the various peaks, and with it, so too did the stories of the wild man increase. It was during the reporting of the 1921 Mount Everest Reconnaissance Expedition, funded in part by the Royal Geographical Society, when the now infamous Abominable Snowman moniker was coined for the creature, following a description to the press of a dark spot seen walking across the horizon, and footprints three times the size of a human's were found in the snow. In truth, it was in fact a mistranslation, though the name stuck, as the stories, often sensational at best, and clear fabrications at worst, rolled out to the presses. The Snowman As a result of the announcement in the dispatches of the Mount Everest expedition of finding tracks in the snow of wild men called the Tibetans Abominable Snowmen, which, much comment and interest, has been aroused in London among explorers who have been through the trails of the northern Himalayas. Several of them have written to London newspapers corroborating the existence of these wild men. One former officer in the Indian service declares that while journeying on horseback through British Sikkim, at a height of about 16,000 feet, he saw one. He describes him as about six feet tall, of wonderful muscular development, very hairy and virtually naked, in spite of the terrific cold. The snowman, according to the officer, carried a primitive bow and arrow. Prior to the Second World War, a small smattering of similar reports came slowly and sporadically down the mountains and out of the foothills. In 1925, N. A. Tombazi, a Greek photographer and member of the Royal Geographical Society's expedition to Sikkim in the Himalayan region, gave an account of a Yeti sighting in his book about the expedition, published the same year. The intense glare and brightness of the snow prevented me from seeing anything for the first few seconds but I soon spotted the object referred to, about 200 to 300 yards away down the valley towards our camp. Unquestionably, the figure in outline was exactly like a human being, walking upright and stopping occasionally to uproot or pull at some dwarf rhododendron bushes. It showed up dark against the snow and, as far as I could make out, wore no clothes. Within the next minute or so, it had moved into some thick scrub and lost to view. Describing the tracks left by the figure, he classed them as similar in shape to those of a human, but only six to seven inches long and with five distinct toes. Skeptical of those in the group that thought it a yeti, he instead theorised that the figure had been a hermit. But 
quite why a hermit would have been uprooting bushes is anyone's guess. Stories like this continue to filter through now and then. However, it was after the war, once normalcy began to return across the world, that led to the peak of Yeti interest within the sphere of the general public in the 1950s, as mountaineers poured back into the region with an eye to scale Everest, striving to conquer the peak of the tallest mountain on Earth, with all of the press interest behind it that one might expect of such a prestigious feat. However, for all of its respective romanticisation, known today as the golden age of mountaineering, the 1950s was a tumultuous time within the Himalayas. The Chinese invasion of Tibet in 1950 saw the country's annexation after the Tibetan government, who had struggled for decades to enforce Tibetan independence, turfed out the Chinese delegation in 1949 and declared their intentions to defend themselves against any Chinese incursions over the borders. In talks mediated by Britain and India in 1950, China demanded that Tibet should fall under their umbrella as an official part of the nation, that they should forego any military power and hand over defence responsibilities to the Chinese along with all their trade and foreign relation activities. The ultimatum was clear. Either Tibet accept the offer and maintain the peace under Chinese sovereignty or ready themselves for war. Negotiations quickly broke down and eventually Chinese troops crossed over the border and killed and captured over 8,000 Tibetan troops in an effort to expedite matters. The 17-point agreement was signed by Tibet in 1951 under severe pressure, effectively handing over sovereignty to China whilst allowing the Dalai Lama to continue to hold his position in the existing government. Having signed the agreement under duress of arms, it was always on shaky ground and as such, the negotiations led to a decade of uncertainty and fragile peace. Crucially, for the story of the Yeti, Tibet, a country who had already been notoriously reclusive, became entirely shut off to the outside world, as Chinese rule denied entry to foreigners. For those mountaineers, seeking to climb Everest and the Himalayan peaks then, it was only possible from the southern Indian and Nepalese side, and it is from this region that all of the climbing and Yeti activity officially took place across the decade. Still, even in India and Nepal, things were not so easy. Nepal had, for centuries, maintained a policy of isolation from the outside world. However, external pressures were beginning to force a changing mindset upon the reclusive country. Geographically positioned on the front lines of the Cold War, cushioning a newly independent India to the south, who had overthrown the British Raj in 1947 and severed ties entirely with the Commonwealth by 1950, and a communist China in the north, Nepal was forced with the real possibility of an uneasy future, and as such, they gradually began to open their borders to the outside world. It was not a fast nor straightforward process, however, and gaining a visa for foreigners remained a difficult proposition and a significant barrier to any expedition before it had even started, requiring a party to possess legitimate scientists and laying out specific guidelines for any exploration. India was then a relatively easy access point to the Himalayan region for mountaineers, despite its recent thrust to independence. Despite all of the difficulties, it did not stop the expeditions from rolling into India and sprawling out across the various peaks, and as the triumphs of successes hit the headlines and peaks fell, a near-Nepalese fever hit the West, and with it came the many stories of the near-forgotten abominable snowman. 
One of the first expeditions into Nepal after the country began opening its borders was the British Himalayan expedition headed up by the British mountaineer Eric Shipton. Shipton had been embarking on expeditions to Everest since the 30s, his first also being the first for a young Sherpa named Tenzig Norgay who would later gain world fame when he scaled the summit with Edmund Hillary in 1953, conquering the peak for the first time in known history. During the 1951 expedition, Shipton came across a series of large tracks in the snow, 20,000 feet above sea level, which he photographed, placing his ice pick alongside for scale. The photograph quickly gained international fame, being syndicated in newspapers across the world. Everest has a monster, Britain's fine footprints. The British Himalayan expedition found and photographed footprints of the legendary abominable snowman during their recent reconnaissance of Mount Everest, according to reports reaching New Delhi yesterday from Kathmandu, Nepal. Mr Eric Shipton, leader of the expedition, is also reported to have met and talked to a hillman who has himself seen the mysterious semi-human gorilla-like monster which is supposed to inhabit regions of the Himalayas where no other living thing can go. According to the Kathmandu reports, the tracks seen by Mr Shipton's party were triangular and larger than the snowshoes worn by members of the expedition. Mr Shipton, who arrived in Delhi last week after a three-month expedition to Everest, is due to leave today by air for London. The footprint photographs will be examined in London by leading zoologists in an attempt to ascertain what kind of animal caused them. Legends among mountain people of Tibet, Nepal and Sikkim describe the abominable snowman as a large, fierce and carnivorous beast, sometimes white and sometimes black or brown. According to legend, anyone who sees one immediately drops dead. British climber Frank Smith, during a climb on a glacier over the Bunda Valley, or Valley of Flowers, in the Himalayas in 1937, reported finding an imprint of a huge naked foot, apparently a biped, about 13 inches in length, with five toes in front and two at the back. The London Natural History Museum created a special exhibition using the photographs of the footprints and placed them next to casts of various monkeys and Himalayan bears made at the London Zoo, inviting the public to make their own conclusions. And on the 15th of December, the Illustrated London News printed an article complete with a large photo of the prints, rocketing it into public view though the piece expressed that the prints had been identified as those of the Langa, a large monkey indigenous to high altitudes in the Himalayan region. The prints sparked fierce debate, with some claiming them to be a concrete evidence of the existence of the Yeti, whilst others thought them to be a host of various different animal tracks that had partially melted, obscuring their original form. Watching all of this Yeti excitement was a man who, in his early life, had sparked his own interest in all things cryptozoological after a road trip to Scotland's Loch Ness. He was a man who possessed a very special interest in catching a yeti and, thankfully, in the hunt for the monster, he was a man who also possessed the means. Thomas Baker Slick Jr. was born on 6th of May 1916 in Clarion, Pennsylvania, in the northeastern region of the United States. With a population of around 2,500, it was a small, quiet town, the spire of the 19th century county courthouse, 
piercing the skyline, looming tall over the surrounding two- and three-storey buildings, nestled amongst a landscape of forested hillsides sloping into the Clarion River, which ran parallel to Main Street that split through the town's centre. Slick's father, Thomas Slick Sr., had been heavily involved in the US oil industry and made his fortune speculating on oil rights over vast tracts of land. Hitting several false starts, it took him some time to strike it rich, and for a period earned himself the nickname of Dry Hole Slick, though he was sure to have the last laugh when, four years before Slick Jr.'s birth, Slick Sr. discovered Oklahoma's largest oil field, thrusting him into prominence in the industry and proved to be only the first in a line of successful drills, making him one of the largest independent oil producers in the nation. In time, he expanded his business ventures, branching out into plantation ownership and the railroad industry after he married Bernice Freights, whose father, Joseph Freights, was already a well-known and big-time name, having a strong hand in the foundations of the country's railroad network. Together with his father-in-law, Slick Sr. founded the towns of Slick and New Yakka in Oklahoma. A relentless worker in his time away from the oil fields, Slick Sr. was a keen hunter and adventurer and travelled the world extensively, spending considerable time in the Far East. Slick Jr. grew up hearing the exotic tales of his father's globetrotting, bouncing around between their three homes in Clarion, Oklahoma City and San Antonio. Thrilled by his father's adventures, he would accompany him on hunting trips in Texas, where his father captivated him with stories of India and the Orient, the old American West, and of life trekking through the wilds of the Indian territories. By the time he was a teenager, he developed a keen interest in biology and natural history that no doubt had a substantial length of its roots in his father's travels. Unfortunately, Slick Sr.'s intense work life caught up with him in 1930 when Slick Jr. was just turning 14 years old. His father killed over the victim of a cerebral hemorrhage aged just 46. In his short life, he'd managed to amass a net worth of just over $75 million, which was split among the family, with Slick Jr. receiving his share of two-thirds of the estate, along with his sister Betty and brother Earl. Though he did not have immediate access to the money, which had been arranged to trickle out over his lifetime, the young Slick Jr. was placed in a comfortable position that would allow him to live off the interest once he became an adult. Shortly after his father's death, Slick Jr. went to Phillips Exeter Academy, a very well-to-do prep school in New Hampshire that boasted several presidents' children amongst its most prominent alumni, along with ties to families like the Rockefellers. It was at Phillips Exeter that he met friend Stuart Strong Wilson, whom he would remain close to throughout his life. Before graduating in 1934, he seemingly got on well at school, learning to speak Spanish, rowing on the school's boating team, and had proven himself to be popular with the girls, a fancy that he would become reasonably well known for. After graduating from Phillips Exeter Academy... Slick attended Yale University, where he studied pre-med biology and maintained his active student life, playing football and debating as a member of the political union. It was during his time as a student that two of the most profound events impacted his life. Firstly, in the year before graduating from Phillips Exeter Academy, his father-in-law, his mother had remarried close family friend and business partner Thomas Urschel shortly after Slick's death, found himself the victim of a kidnapping. 
One peaceful summer evening in June of 1933, whilst playing a game of bridge on the porch on their home, he had been whisked away at gunpoint by bank robber come kidnapper named Machine Gun Kelly. He was held captive for nine days until the family paid the $200,000 ransom. After the kidnapping, Thomas Slick's mother assigned her son a bodyguard and became noticeably more concerned for her son's health and well-being, a move which had already crossed into coddled territory after the death of the father. The kidnapping also led Slick to begin carrying a gun everywhere he went. The second event that would prove to be life-changing for Slick was a road trip to Germany with several of his Yale friends in the summer of 1937. After arriving by boat in Germany, the group drove their Buick sedan across Europe and over the Channel to England, where they drove up to Scotland and visited Loch Ness in search of the lake's famous monster that had begun to cause ripples of excitement in the news after its first reported sighting in 1933. The infamous photograph of the monster taken in 1934 and a slew of sightings that had happened just before Slick arrived, where the monster was reported to have been seen by over a hundred people. When they arrived in Scotland, they spent their time stalking the banks of the loch, hoping to catch their own sight of the mysterious creature. They interviewed the locals in their downtime and collected handfuls of witness reports. It was almost undoubtedly at this time that Slick caught wind of a buzz that would tickle his interest for years and decades to come. Despite not catching so much as a glimpse of a monster during their entire time at Loch Ness, the trip did appear to ignite something within Slick. After graduating from Yale, Slick settled in San Antonio and founded a series of interconnected research institutes, undertaking a broad and diverse portfolio of projects involving agriculture, plant breeding and cattle, as well as biomedicine, biochemistry and a special interest in mechanical and industrial inventions. Outside of business, he was something of a playboy, hanging out with well-known businessmen and socialites like Howard Hughes, as well as a host of scientists, politicians, inventors and academics. He enjoyed hunting and fishing, collected art and amassed a vast horde of artefacts that he'd picked up whilst travelling the world, taking on an element of adventure that he seemingly inherited from his father. In 1939, perhaps following on from his disappointments at Loch Ness, he purchased a hoat, a creature thought to be the head of a hog with the rear of a goat that had recently featured in an issue of Ripley's Believe It or Not. After reading about the animal, he drove to Arkansas to track down the owner, a preacher named J.W. Usher, and promptly offered $100 in cash for the bizarre animal. With the deal done and the animal quickly stuffed into the back of his car, he took off back to San Antonio to stash the animal in his research institute where he reportedly attempted to breed the sorry creature. In the same year, he also married his wife, Betty Lewis, with whom he had his first child, William Lewis, before the couple promptly divorced. The Second World War put a pause to Slick's developing interest in cryptozoology. After the events of Pearl Harbour in 1941, he attempted to sign up for the Navy, however, due to his poor eyesight, he was rejected. Instead, he worked as a shipping officer for the War Production Board in Washington, D.C., and as a cargo officer at the Board of Economic Welfare in Chile, until the armed forces relaxed their entry requirements, which allowed him to enlist in the Navy, where he served as a liaison officer in the Oahu Railroad in Hawaii. After the war, he went into business with his brother, founding Slick Airways, an air freight company that stitched up the market and quickly rose to become the largest air freight company in the U.S., 
He also began following in his father's footsteps, investing in oil drilling and mineral rights. It wasn't all business, however, and in his downtime, he recommenced travelling, especially to India and Nepal, where he discovered the wonders of yogi meditation and levitation, prompting him to open the Mind Science Foundation that, among other things, undertook research into human consciousness and ESP. He also rekindled a now long-running interest in cryptozoology when he began following up tales of the hairy wild man that following the war was now being sighted across the Himalayas with renewed vigour. As Yeti sightings continued throughout the first half of the 1950s, Tom Slick watched on with intense interest. At the height of the press excitement, the Daily Mail fronted a small fortune sponsoring an expedition into the Himalayas in 1954 in the hopes of capturing a live specimen and shipping it back to London for study. The entire expedition had been imagined following the excitement that circulated after the exhibition of Shipton's footprint photographs in 1951 and included over 300 men whose main plan seemed to be to fan out and act like a dragnet on the landscape. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the expedition ceased after 15 weeks, with nothing but a few small scraps of tenuous evidence. Despite this, the general attitude of the time was one of cautious optimism that a specimen would soon be caught. Famous zoological discoveries were still being made throughout the first half of the 20th century. Komodo dragons were one example, which were first recorded by Western scientists in 1910, and the giant panda is probably the most famous example of an animal that wasn't recorded properly in the West until 1936, when a cub was brought to Brookfield Zoo in Chicago. For many, the Yeti was just another in a long line of elusive creatures that had amassed a serious collection of evidence of their existence whilst evading capture by scientists. There were, of course, dissenters who pointed to the tracks of being attributed to bears and monkeys, but a fairly balanced view was, for the most part, the loudest voice. Tom Slick was well and truly in the latter camp. Having travelled India extensively in the first half of the 1950s, he had been hearing stories of the Yeti for some time, and it was time, he decided, to do something about it. In 1956, during one of his frequent trips to India, linked to his Mind Science Research Centre, he travelled to the fringes of the Himalayas to make his own observations and question the locals on their thoughts on the Yeti. It was during this early reconnaissance that he came across the name of Irish-born Peter Byrne. Byrne had been stationed in India throughout the latter half of the 1940s while serving as aircrew in the RAF, and after his discharge had worked as a tea planter in Darjeeling and had spent his vacations trekking into the Sikkim Himalayas on the trail of the Yeti. In 1948, even before he'd left the RAF, he'd stumbled across a series of tracks in the snow during a trek through the Zemu Glacier in northern Sikkim, undertaken on a leave of absence. Convinced the footprints were that of a yeti, he committed to returning as often as possible in order to discover the creature that he was convinced existed. By 1956, Byrne had left India and was living in Australia, but as luck would have it, he'd already been planning an expedition back to the Himalayas and had already secured a visa for entering Nepal. However, he was struggling with finding financing for the expedition. The two men, Slick and Byrne, could hardly seem like a better match for one another, and once introduced, they wasted no time in communicating their interests and plans. Byrne wanted to head up an expedition, but he wanted to do it differently. 
He wasn't interested in huge dragnets with hundreds of men, but rather he theorised an approach more like a traditional hunt. Stalking and tracking with low numbers might be a better way of uncovering a creature who was clearly not forthcoming. The pair sketched out plans and began prepping for a reconnaissance expedition to leave for Nepal in January of 1957, with the theory being that the harsh winter weather would drive the yeti down the mountains and further into the open, just as it did with other animals on the slopes in search of food. However, the Nepalese government were proven to be difficult, insisting that their party have the backing and sponsorship of a legitimate scientific organisation. Fortunately, Slick sat on the board of the San Antonio Zoological Society, and so he leveraged his position to make it happen. A proposal was sent to the Nepalese government for an expedition of six men, including Slick and Byrne themselves, along with David Douglas Duncan, a New York photographer, N. Baketti, a Delhi Zoological Park superintendent, Dharma Raj Thapa, a Kathmandu historian, and Colonel K. N. Rana, the Nepal Bureau of Mines Director. Despite the six men named on the proposal, only Slick, Byrne and Baketti made the final cut, and the trio entered Nepal on the 14th of March 1957, hiring seven Sherpas and 40 Nepalese porters, making the Aran Valley region south of Mount Everest their base of operations. The valley was host to a collection of forested hillsides and remote villages, and had been the scene of several footprint sightings over the past decade. Using Baketti's vast knowledge of the valley's topography and people, and Colonel Rana's information from his previous expeditions, they spent five weeks scouring the area, questioning the locals, and scouting routes for future expeditions. As part of their question of the local residents, the group used photos of various animals, and asked supposed Yeti witnesses to point out which animal most resembled what they had seen. Almost universally, the picture pointed to was that of a gorilla standing upright, with the second most consistent being that of an illustration of what they called a prehistoric ape-man. As an outlier, they included an image of a bear, as the footprints were often claimed to have been bear prints by Yeti sceptics. However, the answer was almost that of disbelief, with everyone confirming to the group that they knew exactly what a bear looks like and would not have misidentified one. During one trek at around 16,500 feet, they did come across a series of footprints that had seemingly been made that same morning, each one 13 inches long, bipedal in pattern and with five distinct toes. I realised the tremendous possibility that a quick follow-up of the prints presented the chance of coming face to face with the creature that had successfully concealed its identity from the world for more than 70 years. I took some quick photographs of the tracks, in line from the side and from above by climbing a small rhododendron tree. I used all of one film and reloaded the camera with another. Meanwhile, Ang Dower had broken out the gun and was stuffing shells into his pocket. While Slick's main aim was attempt to catch a yeti alive, and the group carried traps to do exactly that, he very much came from an era of hunting when dead or alive was much one and the same thing. The group all carried guns for self-protection, and if push came to shove, Slick was, in the early days of his yeti hunting career at least, perfectly willing to issue the order to shoot if they were to run across the creature. Hampering this, however, was the Nepalese government, who, just days after Slick's expedition had entered Nepal, had drafted new laws forbidding the killing of a yeti, only allowing Slick's men to use their weapons in case of extreme defence. The group continued to track the footprints for an entire day, following them as they tore through bushes and sidestepped trees. 
the creature that left them stripping the bark off in the process. I arranged for Gauzen to take some of the Walang men and backtrack the footprints in the hope of finding some droppings, or perhaps even the lair where the creature might have spent the night. I asked them to carefully examine any bushes or branches close to the trail that the creature may have brushed against for hairs or fur. The track led off downhill on the deep snow, and after a few hundred yards, I realised that the follow-up was not going to be easy. They carried on for most of the time in a straight line, crashing through bushes or bamboos that were in the way. In steep places, the creature appeared to have sometimes slipped in the snow and gone slithering down in deep, ploughed furrows, scattering snow in all directions. In other places, the surface had given way and his foot had gone right through. Once, where it had crawled under a mossy branch above a steep slope, it had reached up and gripped or hung on a branch for a moment. The moss was torn off on an area about the size of a large man's hand. In another place, where it had gone over a huge fallen log, it had leapt a considerable distance off the log and landed on two feet. The tracks were, continuously, the tracks of only two feet, and nowhere did I find anything to suggest that the creature had gone down on all fours. I took careful photographs of most of the markings. Eventually, the group were forced to leave the trail and return to camp as nightfall approached with no sign of any yeti on the horizon and only the prospect of becoming trapped in the wilderness overnight loomed. Five weeks later, the group left Nepal to collate their findings and figure out their next move. Although the expedition had failed to make any groundbreaking discoveries, they had uncovered evidence in three sets of tracks and amassed detailed reports from some 15 eyewitness accounts and so, Slick considered it a resounding success. Despite its low-key nature, the expedition left a lasting impression on Slick in a couple of key ways. Firstly, he had heard so many varied descriptions of the Yeti that he had begun to theorise that the name was, in fact, an umbrella term for what were three distinct species. There were, at the very least, one large species of snowman that grew up to seven or eight feet tall, along with a second, far smaller creature that grew only up to around five feet and left far smaller tracks in the snow. The second profound event to happen on the expedition would prove to put an end to Slick's physical involvement in any future expeditions, when, early on in their time in the Aran Valley, a bus that they were travelling on stopped by the side of the road for the night and began rolling backwards down the hill. In the ensuing panic, Slick threw himself from the out-of-control vehicle, injuring his knee in the process. When Slick's mother, who had grown more and more protective over her son since his father's death, had heard of the incident, she requested that he leave the future fieldwork to others, and so Slick never returned to Nepal, opting instead to busy himself with the planning and overseeing of all future expeditions from the comfort of home. Almost as soon as he returned, Slick began planning for a second expedition. Once again, the expedition would seek to take advantage of the winter weather and attempt to capture a yeti whilst it would be forced out of its more natural and clearly secluded hiding place. Slick would oversee the expedition from America, keeping in constant communication, and once more Byrne would head up the expedition. This time, however, he would share the responsibilities with Gerald Russell an American naturalist who had already bagged plenty of experience, having headed up the earlier expedition organised by the Daily Mail in 1954. Despite the earlier expedition, 
Russell was on board with Slick and Burn's more low-key method of hunting animals in their natural habitats and subscribed himself to a method of befriending the locals, using their intimate knowledge of an area and embedding himself into the landscape. Along with Byrne and Russell, other key members of the second expedition included George Holton, a photographer, Norman Dyrenthurf, a cinematographer, and Captain Pushkar Shamshir Rana, who would act as the Nepalese liaison officer. The group departed in February 1958 and enlisted the aid of 75 porters, 15 Sherpas and three tracking dogs named Mary, Lou and Blue. After setting up base camp in Walung, Byrne organised the small treks into the mountains of the Aran Valley, whilst Russell chose to set up an observation post in the Montane Valley, a vast forested region where he would wait for the Yeti to expose itself. Despite Slick's obvious optimism, he wrote to the group explaining steps that they should take should they capture a yeti and assured them that he would fly over to Nepal immediately in the event. The reality on the ground, however, was one that was somewhat less optimistic and was filled with tension between the two leaders and their differing opinions on how to go about the hunt. Byrne was a mountaineer and much favoured his hands-on technique of getting up into the peaks where footprints had been found and he clearly didn't think much of Russell's passive lookout post tucked away in the trees. Russell, on the other hand, had extensive experience capturing animals in their natural habitats and thought Burns' techniques crude and a waste of time and energy. It seems likely that there was no small amount of ego between the two men as well. Clearly, things were not going quite to plan, as Slick had to write to the men soon after the expedition had begun to remind them to try and get along. I think that it is most important that everybody get along well together. I sense, from some of the letters, certain differences of opinion, certain possible personal frictions or criticisms or questions of judgement, which is probably only to be expected under the circumstances that have existed so far. But I urge you all to be reasonable, considerate, and to get along, even though everyone may not agree with everyone else. Otherwise, the results of the expedition will suffer. I think I can count on all of you for that. The main thing is to get the results. The expedition continued, warped by an overt tension between the various cliques, finding little evidence of anything in the process. In May, Dyer First Group did come across something which they believed to be of importance to the expedition in the form of a cave which they believed was the home of a yeti. Scattered on the ground, they found droppings containing the remains of mouse hairs which were abundant in the area and a bed of juniper branches. You'd have to be immensely strong to pull those juniper branches out of the ground. We tried. We couldn't. The yeti must be stronger than a man. Sadly, the yeti that they presumed to live in the cave was not home, nor did he seem to return for the ten days that they stalked the entrance. Meanwhile, Byrne was off on his own mission, investigating rumours of yeti body parts that had been sighted in various monasteries as ritualistic items. He quickly discovered that, such was the importance of the relics to many of the local communities, that they were often faked, random animal limbs or skull caps fashioned from old hides. However, there was one, a mummified hand in the pangbuche, that seemed more interesting than the others. Byrne photographed the hand, and sent images to Slick, who promptly decided that he need the hand, despite Byrne's insistence that he'd tried to buy it but had been categorically turned away. The pair would have to come up with some kind of plan. 
the second expedition, wrapped up quietly in June of 1958, though Burns stayed on for some months throughout the year, assisting Slick in tracking down more relics and following up further rumours, while Slick himself began planning for the next outing, emboldened by the stories of mummified Yeti body parts. By the late 50s, the hype surrounding the Yeti in the West may have only just been reaching its peak. However, the truth was that many people in the creature's tale had been coming across stories of yetis from the indigenous population of the Himalayas that dated back hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Stories of the creature had penetrated the Nepalese culture at its deepest levels. Children were warned off against roaming alone for fear of the yeti. Monks revered it for its symbolism, and for local villages, its presence could bring both good and bad luck, or even provide protection. During Burns' extended expedition in 1958, he followed up on stories of monasteries that kept relics, scalps and forearms and hands taken from supposed yetis as powerful religious symbols and artefacts. He debunked many, including one outright, after he tracked it down only to discover it was the limb of a snow leopard, and he came across several scalps that were more likely to just be goat hides. There was one, however, that pulled him in, the Pangbache hand, a blackened, mummified hand said to have come from a yeti. It looked like a large human hand. It was covered with crusted, black, broken skin. It was very oily from the candles and the oil lamps in the temple. The fingers were hooked and curled. After photographing the appendage and sending the pictures on to Slick back in America, the pair set about retrieving the hand for a proper investigation. In 1959, Slick arranged with Peter Byrne, along with his brother Brian, to go back into the mountains and conduct their most low-key expedition yet. It would be just the two brothers alone, with only the barest bones of equipment. It was to be one of the longest expeditions yet, lasting some nine months, and it would entail one of the group's most audacious stunts, the theft of the Pangboche hand, right out from under the monks' noses. Byrne knew that he would not have been able to buy the hand. He had tried once before and been told that it was impossible. The hand was a powerful relic of the monastery, they said, and the monks believed that if it was removed, it would bring bad luck and disaster to the temple. To this end, Slick and Byrne devised another way. Slick arranged for a meeting between himself, Byrne, and Professor William Osmond Hill, a primatologist at the Royal College of Surgeons Hunterian Museum, which was a collection of anatomy and pathology amassed by 18th century anatomist John Hunter in London. Professor Hill was especially keen to see the hand for himself and he presented Byrne with a mummified human finger that he could use to switch with a finger of the Pangboche hand in order to bring the original back to London for it to be scientifically analysed. What happened next is open to some debate. One account tells it that... Whilst feigning a photographic session with the hand, and as soon as he was in private, alone with the dried, crusty old relic, Burns set about switching one of the fingers with the human finger supplied to him from Professor Hill, all without the monk's consent or knowledge. Burn himself, on the other hand, claims that he bargained with the monks, agreed a price, and swapped the finger in order to keep the switch from the knowledge of the locals. The latter story might exonerate Byrne from the crime to a certain extent, 
but one might recognise the obvious contradiction with his earlier claims that he had already attempted to purchase the hand on an earlier visit and been told in no uncertain terms that it was not for sale. There are also records of his communication with Slick that shows that a deal with the monks was almost certainly a later fabrication. I shall not go into detail here of how he got the thumb and the phalanx of the Pangbache hand. The main thing is that we have them, and that the lamas of the monastery do not know that we have them. Because they do not know it, it is of the utmost importance that there is no news releases on this, or any publicity for some time. Whichever tale you choose to believe, the outcome was the same. Byrne managed to obtain an alleged mummified finger of a yeti, and all that was left for him to do now was to smuggle it back out of the country and get it into Slick's possession. An order that was easier said than done. Harbouring concerns with their ability to get the finger through customs, Slick arranged a liaison between Byrne and Hollywood actor James Stewart, well known for his role as the leading man in Hitchcock's Rear Window and Vertigo, who had been visiting India with his wife, Gloria. Knowing that Stuart was likely to face much less scrutiny at customs, Byrne handed over the finger and the actor and his wife hid it in Gloria's lingerie case, safely transporting it to London. Dr Hill's initial analysis of the finger was probably something of a disappointment to Byrne and Slick, who had gambled so much to smuggle the artefact out of the country. It was, he concluded, of human origin. It seemed likely that Byrne had gone through everything in order to switch a human finger with a human finger. The origin of the hand would prove to be an item of some debate over the years. Professor Hill himself would change his opinion on what it actually was several times, suggesting a few months after his initial inspection that he now thought it to be from a gorilla, whilst other scientists suggested that it was from some form of Neanderthal. The hand would eventually become mysteriously lost, only to resurface several decades later. But for now, it was seemingly little more than a sore disappointment and a symbol of the expedition so far, which despite Slick's nether-ending optimism, were proving to be a lot of effort for very little return. The press were growing more and more sceptical with every passing expedition, and then, as the decade drew to a close, a story was to come along that would sink Yeti credibility forever. With the Himalayas being troublesome as they were for organising Yeti expeditions, Slick began to draw his interest in the peaks to a close, and instead decided to shift his focus to reports that had been creeping out closer to home. For the past year, Slick had been keeping a close eye on the continued reports coming from the Bluff Creek area of Northern California of a creature that people were calling the Californian Yeti. The region would later become infamous thanks to the Patterson-Gimlin film, but in 1959, the majority of the evidence that flowed from the area was much the same as that from Nepal. A few anecdotes, a few vague footprints, and a huge collection of animal crap. An excited Slick contacted Byrne, who was most keen to get his hands dirty in a new environment, to arrange for him to begin expeditions in America. Meanwhile, Edmund Hillary, the now very famous mountaineer and explorer who had first scaled Everest back in 1953, was back in the Himalayas, following a few expeditions to both the North and South Poles. Hillary was back in Nepal alongside TV personality and director of the Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago, Marlon Perkins, after declaring that he was interested in seeking out the abominable snowman in order to find out if it is a myth 
or a monster. In truth, Hillary wanted to go to the Himalayas in order to test his theory that they could get to the peak of Everest without any assisted oxygen. However, gaining funding for such an experiment had been proven difficult. Gaining funding for an expedition to uncover the Yeti, headed up by a famed explorer and TV host, was, on the other hand, comparatively easy. So why not just kill two birds with one stone? The expedition was funded almost entirely by World Books, an American publisher of children's encyclopedias, who fronted $125,000 for the search, that was followed obsessively in the press, who printed week-to-week progress reports in newspapers around the world. The group left for the mountains in September of 1960 and spent most of that winter getting on with various acclimatisation experiments atop the peaks of Amadablam and Makalu, gathering important information on high-altitude physiology that would prove to be invaluable in the wider scientific community. On the side, they visited several monasteries and villages, collecting yeti relics along the way, including several skull caps, all made from various animal skins, and one of which was claimed to have been 240 years old that they brought back to the UK with them after promising to return it once it had been inspected by scientists in London. The most interesting relic they inspected, however, was, of course, the Pangbache hand, which they immediately recognised for what it was. The problem was that what the hand actually was was not what the monks thought it was, and hadn't been since Byrne had pinched one of the fingers over a year earlier. Hillary later wrote of the hand, This is essentially a human hand, strung together with wire, with the possible inclusion of several animal bones. Which is, of course, precisely what it was. At least, some of the hand had come from Professor Hill back in England, and was confirmed to be human, and it had been strung together in wire by Byrne. Slick and Byrne, could do nothing but watch on as the press descended on the information from Hillary, hardly ready to expose themselves as thieves, whilst the reputation of the Yeti was torn to pieces in front of their very eyes. The press went to town on Hillary's conclusions drawn from the expedition, claiming that the skullcap they had brought back with them, along with all the other relics that they had seen, were fakes, that the footprints were partially melted fox or bear prints, and that the Yeti was, categorically, a myth. The abominable snowman of the Himalayas rightfully belongs in the field of mythology. That's the conclusion reported by Sir Edmund Hillary in a copyrighted article in Life magazine this week. The famed explorer was revealing the results of months of study and investigation from the Himalayan heights in Nepal to museums of Chicago, London and Paris. Noting that he had begun the search for the Yeti with some scepticism, Sir Edmund ticked off the evidence cited by Yeti believers and then disposed of it. There is still much to be explained, he wrote in Life. Our theory on the tracks does not cover every case. We have not yet found a satisfactory explanation for the noise of the Yeti, which many Sherpas claim to have heard. But all in all, we feel we have solved some of the major problems surrounding the elusive creature. Of course, the Yeti still remains a very real part of the mythology and tradition of the Himalayan peoples, and it is undoubtedly in the field of mythology that the Yeti rightly belongs. It was a death toll for the Yeti, securing what many had believed all along and pushing the fence-sitters, and even many of the believers, fully into the realm of non-belief. It was the end of the Yeti golden era, and a damning blow to the pseudoscience of cryptozoology, of which, on the front of the Yeti at least, never fully recovered. Tales of the Yeti have increasingly been met with stern side-eye and flat-out scepticism, 
not in the least helped with the fact that still, all these years later, not a single specimen has ever been found. With all the ridicule that the Yeti was receiving in the press, it was perhaps best that Slick and Burn had already moved away from the Himalayas. Since 1956, reports of a monster called the Sasquatch had been coming out of British Columbia, and as the 50s wrapped up and logging operations in northeastern California tore through the Bluff Creek region, stories of large footprints made by some big-footed creature that the press imaginatively called Bigfoot had made their way out to Slick who thought that the creature must have been genetic related to the Yeti in some way, and he was now preparing to get his hands dirty once more, back out in the field. For over two years, Slick and Burn coordinated expeditions across the American Pacific, Slick occasionally flying into a camp here and there by helicopter to check up on his explorers and join in for a bit of hunting. However, it all came to an abrupt end when Slick died, aged only 46 years old, as he was returning home from a hunting and business trip in Canada and the private jet that he was on exploded in midair, 40 miles south of Dillon in Colorado. The plane was said to have disintegrated in flight and Slick's body was found badly burned, three quarters of a mile from the crash site. With Slick's death, much of the more out there research interests that he had been advanced in, including the Yeti, were swept under the rug and, due to the private nature of much of it, quickly forgotten. Byrne would continue to search for Bigfoot, and in fact, still continues to do right up until today, though he has yet been unsuccessful in capturing a specimen. With such an abrupt end to affairs, a lot of the correspondence between Slick and his team of expeditionaries, research and evidence, were quickly lost and forgotten. Perhaps, most interestingly, this included the Pangboche hand, or at least the Pangboche finger. However, decades later... It reappeared, or at least fragments of it reappeared, when anthropologist George Agagino revealed that he had a section of the finger in 1991 when the popular TV show Unsolved Mysteries filmed an episode dedicated to the hand. The TV show analysed the fragments, but the results were inconclusive, though they thought they were most likely human in origin. The finger showed up once more, however, in 2008, when a dusty old box was opened in the Hunterian collection and the finger, labelled as having come from the Pangboche Monastery, was rediscovered. The finger underwent DNA testing in 2011, headed up by Dr Rob Ogden, a geneticist from Edinburgh Zoo, which determined the bones to be human and the DNA sequencing matching it to recorded human sequences from China and the Himalayan region. Dr Rob Jones, a senior scientist at the Zoological Society of Scotland, told the BBC that We have got a very, very strong match to a number of existing reference sequences on human DNA databases. It's very similar to existing human sequences from China and that region of Asia, but we don't have enough resolution to be confident of a racial identification. Aside from the hand, there still remains many unsolved questions in regards to the Yeti and also to Slick himself. The Yeti appears to uphold a certain level of contradiction. It is not an exaggeration to say that the evidence of its existence is vast. However, it is almost all unreliable or anecdotal. Over the years, there have been hundreds of footprints discovered, dozens photographed, and a few cast in plaster. The stories are many and span generations, but the creature itself remains to this day as elusive as ever.
As for Slick, his death, abrupt as it was, has in turn thrown up questions, and with some even delving into the realm of conspiracy, suggesting that his plane was either sabotaged or blown up with an explosive device. The evidence for either is fairly flimsy. However, there were officials at the time of the crash that were posturing on it being caused by an internal explosion. If it was a case of murder rather than just a straight accident, though, it rather begs the question, why would anyone want to kill Tom Slick? In his book about Slick, author Lauren Coleman suggests that Slick's involvement with Yeti expeditions and the mine science projects could have been seen as an embarrassment and a colossal waste of funds to both his research associates and his rifles. Others suggest that his work in the peace project was rubbing people the wrong way politically, or, even at the extreme end of conspiracy, that his Yeti expeditions were in fact just cover for his real mission as a spy seeking to gather evidence on the Russians, the Chinese, or to be honest, just about anyone and everything, depending on who you ask. The fact that it was the middle of the Cold War just seems to encourage matters. The most obvious theory, and the one that seems to be the official line, is that the plane was caught up in a storm and struck by lightning. This seems like a fair enough answer, until the weather records are checked, and one sees that there were no storms in the area at the time of the accident. Situations like this have gone a long way to stirring the pot of the conspiracy theorists. Whatever happened to Slick's plane, with all records destroyed as they were, we are unlikely to ever know, and in 2022, the mystery of Tom Slick's death is forgotten, just as the records of his Yeti expeditions and work on various cryptids. It may have seemed marginally less absurd to front an expedition to catch a Yeti in the 1950s than it would today, but it still took someone of quite an eccentric character, with an unblinking optimism and a passion to seek out the monster with the conviction shown by Slick. Crazy, driven, curious, probably all can be levied towards him, and his death dealt a sore blow in the hunt for the Yeti. And what of the creature itself? It still manages to go unseen, firmly rooted in a mythological status, just as Hillary suggested back in 1962. Whether it is a real flesh and blood being, or a symbol, the imagined embodiment of our fear of the wilds, is another question entirely. As we meticulously map the globe with satellite imagery and track our whereabouts using GPS, the wilds have evolved from a traditional sense into something new and equally sinister. Pandemics, terrorism and cyber warfare all threaten our cosy manufactured environments of safety. Our fear of the untamed and uncontrollable never falters, and so the legend of the Yeti persists. An unidentified footprint in the snow, as intriguing today as it was over a hundred years ago. And whilst the creator is as elusive as ever, it is today as it always was, just over the horizon, obscured just out of sight. So that was the story of Tom Slick in his hunt for the Yeti, mainly the the kind of heist of the Pangbache hand, which is bonkers. So we'll talk a little bit about that after these short advert breaks. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before, 
Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Havey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Welcome back. So thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As a first episode, I, w- I wanted to start with something, you know, something really sort of bonkers and interesting. So you can't really start with anything better than the Yeti, right? So I hope you enjoyed it anyway. Um, as for my thoughts, I, I-, I found this like a really interesting episode to research. Um, I-, I-, I read like so-, so many books over Christmas on it. I, I read about four or five books on it, which is weird because I've never really shown that much interest in the Yeti before. Although I, I have had more of an interest in the Yeti than Bigfoot, for example, um, you know, Bigfoot for me is kind of interesting, but it, it's not something that I kind of really subscribe to and get into. Although I do like listening to um, Sasquatch Chronicles, if you've ever heard that. It's a great podcast on Sasquatch. But anyway, um, yeah, it's not really something I've, I've kind of ever really subscribed to. But I, I do remember I've always been fascinated by the Yeti since reading Tintin in Tibet when I was a kid. I suppose, actually, I kind of fall victim to a certain degree to what I mentioned about that, 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 that kind of romanticized view of the Himalayas, you know, with the, the kind of Tibetan monasteries and, and things of that nature, you know, like I, I probably do fall victim to that romanticization of that a little bit, which I think definitely helps. It, it definitely creates a, a mysticism around the area that is easy to get sucked into. So I think I probably fall victim to that a little bit. I, I definitely think that in the region, it, it's it's quite clear that it's a creature of, in, of huge cultural importance. It's definitely a, a symbol to, to those people, without a doubt. And and so, I, in a funny sort of way, all of these expeditions that we talked about, they don't matter. They're, they're irrelevant, you know. Like 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 to these people, the yeti is is much so much more. And and so, to prove it or not, you know, to find it and show its existence or not, it's all kind of rather irrelevant when you when you kind of look at it on that scale. Um, but that's not really the point of this episode, so so let's talk about the actual expeditions. I, I thought Tom Slick was a really interesting character, and I, I really enjoyed how convinced he was that they were going to catch it. He would write letters that, that, that would outlay, like, in quite minute detail what would happen when they caught it, and... You know, he was convinced that it was going to happen. It was never, when you read the letters, that they're, they're never like, oh, if we catch it, I'll come over to Nepal, which was, you know, one of the things that was in the plan. But it was always like, when you catch it. Say so it was never if, it was always when. And he's just convinced. And I, I suppose to some degree you could say he was managing the expeditions and so he was sort of managing people there because obviously it's probably not it's probably not good to use words like if when you're trying to keep morale up. Do you know what I mean? Like you you, you kind of want to be that voice of optimism, and I, and I, and I guess that that that's potentially the role he was taking. But I think it's more than that. I think he genuinely was convinced that he was going to catch it. I don't I don't think he was merely like say like managing people there. I think he was genuinely 
convinced that they were going to catch the Yeti, which I which I think is fantastic, and I think he's a really interesting character. I think I think he was definitely had like a, a sense of eccentricity about him. You know, you often see those kind of like rich eccentrics, but he was very much a sort of dapper young gentleman, you know. So you don't expect eccentricity to be quite so much in that demographic. It's usually the slightly older, richer eccentrics, you know, the, the kind of stereotypical rich eccentrics, right? Not not the young dapper gentleman who was kind of, you know, a bit of a ladies' man, a bit of a playboy, you know, clearly very um, sort of popular and handsome. You know, he was he was definitely cut a fine figure, I guess you could say. Um, so you don't you don't necessarily expect it from someone like like that. Um, it's less the stereotype, at least. So yeah, I found him himself to be a really fascinating person. The the whole Pangbache hand thing was absolutely bonkers, and and I, I mean I couldn't believe what I was reading when they said about James Stewart coming in and. <laughs> you just think what on earth i had to like re like check what i was reading because i i was reading it and i was thinking wait hang on james stewart as in like rear window which is one of my favorite films of all time and i was thinking no it can't be wait and and so i had to read it like two or three times but but it makes for a fantastic story and and the fact that it's true is is bonkers but also, when you think about it, it's really harsh that that they clearly stole it. I don't believe for a minute Burns' later story that they bought it. I, I absolutely don't believe that for a minute. I do think potentially they could have bought it. And I do think that the monasteries perhaps overplayed how important they were to them in order to kind of uh, push their hand a little more, you know, to, to kind of extract a little more money out of the deal or, or a little more out of the deal because you know why not right they they're the ones calling the shots so why not get the best deal they can so I, I do think they probably would have sold it if they'd been offered the right amount of money and I do think the reason they turned burn away the first time is just because he, he didn't match what they wanted right and so I do think it's possible that he could have bought it at a future date but I don't think he did. I think they stole it. <laughs> I think without a doubt, the fact that he had that letter written to Slick where he says, I've got the hand. They don't know I've got the hand and be quiet. Don't make a public fuss about this because I need to get out of the country alive, basically. Yeah, I, it's quite clear that they stole that. Well, it's just not cool, is it? But um, but it, but it definitely makes for a fantastic story. But yeah, I guess, um, you know, we could talk a little bit about belief in the yeti it's interesting i i obviously i read like four books about this four or five books about this which is i'm not saying i, I you know i'm now an expert or i'm particularly well read on the yeti which is you know far from the truth but i did see a lot of the evidence and, and read a lot of the evidence and, and and evidence definitely has to go in air quotes here because almost all of it is um i would say uh flimsy at best my gut says to me that these footprints are, are not real i mean a, a lot of them were proven to be uh faked a lot of them were uh, are kind of rumored to be faked some some of the really like big ones like the shipton footprint which is you know one of the most famous uh was the picture with the ice pick down the side of it and it's the one that they you know they they, they showed in the uh, national um, museum in London and all the rest of it. And when it happened, it was like a big deal. But there's rumours that that was faked and that Shipton was just doing it for a laugh. Um, do I think the Yeti exists? 
do you know what? I'm I'm very like open to the idea or more open to the idea of the Yeti than I am of a lot of other things. And I don't know why. I can't put my finger on it because Bigfoot, for example, I'm 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 very skeptical on Bigfoot. And I'm probably a little more open to the idea of a Yeti. But as to why, I can't really explain because they're both equally, let's face it, at this point in time, unlikely, really. And and I think that, that the healthy position is probably one to adopt a fairly strong amount of scepticism. But I'm kind of not with the Yeti. I'm kind of, there's something deep down, maybe it's just that kid in me, that red tintin, uh, uh, but there's something deep down in me that says, yeah, but maybe, what if? So that's kind of where I'm at there. Not really answered, sort of fence sitting, I guess. But that's where I am. So yeah, do let me know your thoughts. Let me know where you are on the Yeti. Thanks very much for listening. We'll wrap it up there. If you would like to contact me in any way, the email address, same as it always is, contact at darkhistories.com. You could also get in touch with me with any of the social media platforms. If you want to follow on Instagram, that would be wicked. I'm trying to get to 10,000 followers this year. That's like my goal for this year. So if you want to follow me on Instagram, that would be amazing. It's dark underscore histories. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and you can find all the links to everything in the show notes and also at darkhistories.com, which is the kind of main hub. And on there, you'll be able to find all the ways in which you can contact me and all the ways that you can support the show if you would like to do so, uh, our Patreon, things like that. Um, obviously, any support you can give is uh, greatly received. Um, I mentioned at the start of the show that this is like a, you know, a, a one-man show um, and it is completely supported basically by Patreon at this point. Um, which is amazing, but um, obviously it, it relies on, on on listener support. So, yeah, if you can support, that'd be great. If not, not a problem. So thanks very much for listening. I'll see you in a couple of weeks for the next episode. Cheers. Sleep time. Mm-hmm.